Isaiah chapter 40. Last week we began uh, this new section of this great book of Isaiah and uh, uh, spent a lot of time on two verses. And we're going to begin reading there again, verses 1 and 2. But this time we're going to go on and and, uh, continue on in our study of 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 Isaiah 40. (sighs) Acts is in my head right now, but... We're in Isaiah, Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 1. Let's read the first five verses and then we'll pray for our study this evening. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Father, what a joy it is to know that you are a great and awesome God who has love and mercy and grace to extend to all, but especially your people. And tonight we pray that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would allow us the opportunity to understand and to grow in wisdom and in understanding of this passage that we're going to look at tonight. We pray that it will be something more than just academic learning. We pray more than anything that it is spiritual learning and that it is spiritual growing and maturing, knowing that you have done great things for us to right now be saved and And that loved by you in the midst of a world that does not love you nor his people. But as much as you love the world that you gave your only begotten son, may we as well have a certain kind of love, that kind of love in which we say to others that Jesus Christ coming to die for their sins and the sins of all men is the good news that we need to continue to declare and to proclaim. Give us, Father God, wisdom and grace and opportunity to do so until the day that Jesus returns. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I think that uh, we would all agree to the fact that uh, if there is a necessity to declare the existence of good news then the implication is that bad news already exists. Take, for example, the good news, bad news that pastors often receive. The good news is this. The Women's Guild voted to send you a Get Well card. Remember, this is for pastors. The good news. The Women's Guild voted to send you a Get Well card. The bad news. The vote passed 3130. 
You didn't get that, did you? Who didn't get that? Who's not listening here? Good news. Your women's softball team finally won a game. The bad news. They beat your men's softball team. You see? Okay, you're getting the idea. Good news. Church attendance rose dramatically the last three weeks. The bad news. You were on vacation. You see the kind of bad news pastors have to deal with all the time. I, I use these examples because we don't have a women's guild and we don't have a women's or men's softball team, so I'm kind of thankful for all of that. And I don't go on vacation, so, you know, it's a, for that long a time. So that's, that's a good thing. But in God's economy, the roles are mercifully reversed in that we get bad news and then good news. Much of the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah focused on a lot of bad news. Even though there were certainly pockets of good news interspersed throughout the many passages which predicted failure and sin, it predicted faith, faithlessness and sorrow on the part of God's people. <clears throat> but as we saw last time, the Lord gave through the prophet Isaiah a proclamation of pardon. He gave a proclamation of pardon, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God means to comfort His people, but in doing so, He has to bring before them unquestionably their true condition in His sight. And then he shows his remedy. You see, bad news, good news. One great example of bad news, good news, is, is uh, the first chapter of the book of Romans. Before we start getting into the good news of, 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 uh, of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the bad news is uh, that um, uh, God is, 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 is uh, going to show his wrath against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's the bad news. <clears throat> the good news is that salvation is through Jesus Christ. So you see, bad news to good news. Now, this is a hard saying that I'm going to bring up here in just a moment, but this is a hard saying for some to accept. But oftentimes, and listen carefully, and please listen through this whole thought. There's a hard saying for some to accept, but oftentimes God wounds so he can heal. He kills so that he might make alive. Realize that this thought comes from God himself. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Here God says, Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. That's, that's an awesome statement that God makes, isn't it? I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. You move on over to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And consider this particular wisdom that is given to us here. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. 
The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and He lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength no man shall prevail. God is sovereign. God is in control of life and even death. There's a statement made by one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, in in Job chapter 5, verse 18. It is a very true phrase, but it was misdirected toward Job. But that's another story. Job 5.18 is this, For he bruises, but he binds up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. You see, there's that thought once again about God. And then later on in Hosea, the prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 1, He has stricken, but He will bind us up. He has stricken, but He will bind us up. How He loved His people, and He loved them so much that He gave them His law so that they would know what His desire was for their very lives and very hearts, for that they would follow Him and and live for Him and honor Him as their God and their King. But as soon as they receive His law, they begin to break every one of those commandments. And God warned. Even from the very beginning, even from the garden, when God told Adam and Eve that uh, they're, they're in the garden, they could have anything that they want except for the fruit of the one tree in the midst of the garden. And even one commandment was, was broken. But you see, the bad news to the good news, we can never know God in the fullness of His power to sustain and to comfort His people until they have come to the end of their own resources. We have to come to the end of our resources and say, God, we need You. In God's ministry of comfort, as we talked about last week, He always begins by showing us our need And our dependence. He always begins by showing us our need and our dependence upon His omnipotent power. Take, for instance, the passage beginning at verse 6. Just jump down there in Isaiah 40, verse 6. We're coming back to it. But I want you to see something here. How He wants us to come to the end of our resources. How He wants us to see our need and our dependence upon Him. The voice said, cry out. And He said, what shall I cry? All flesh is as grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. It isn't until we realize our own total nothingness, our own total helplessness, that we are in a position then to make ourselves available to the comfort that the Lord wants to give and waits to give. He wants to give us this comfort, but He wants us to come to the realization that we need Him. He wants, to come, he wants us to come to that place of, of nothingness in and of ourselves, of helplessness in and of ourselves, so we can trust and depend totally upon Him. One thing I didn't mention the last time about God's comfort is the fact that each person of the triune God, each person of the Trinity, is employed in the ministry of comfort. In 2 Corinthians 1, which we quoted last week, the Father is called the God of all comfort. The Father 
is called the God of all comfort. Four times in the Gospel of John, four times in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. That's between chapters 15 and 16. Four times in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter. And Jesus is referred in 1 John 2, in verse 1, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now the word advocate there is the exact same word in the Greek in Greek as comforter. Advocate is parakletos. The word comforter is parakletos, the one who comes alongside. He comes alongside to comfort us. He comes alongside to be our advocate and our comforter. But now as we get back into Isaiah 40, he, you know, we see that he looks forward now. Isaiah looks forward to the time. And certainly the Lord does as well. But he looked forward to the time when Israel's iniquities will be put away by speaking to the heart of Jerusalem, as we saw last time as well. Speaking to the heart of Jerusalem and telling her that her warfare was accomplished and her iniquity and sin was pardoned because He, God, had paid double for her sins. And that, com- and that He did completely. In other words, paid in full. That was the proclamation of pardon that we saw last time. But now in the next section, as we get into verse 3, we see something more than just a proclamation of pardon. We see the declaration of divine providence. The declaration of divine providence. And, and you'll see in verse, five, and, uh, verse 3 through 5. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's interesting that in this particular passage we actually see the two comings of Jesus. The first coming and the second coming. They're really both referred to here as we'll see in just a moment. Now I briefly mentioned last time that there is certainly one way of getting comfort And that is by preparing for the coming of the Lord. We talked a little bit about that last week. We can get comfort by preparing for the coming of the Lord. Now, it is sad to think that many believers in Jesus Christ remain, for whatever reason, they remain disheartened, they remain discouraged, sometimes, uh, you know, just uh, disillusioned even in this life, for whatever reason. But then I want you to consider the Jews. Consider the Jews for just a moment, who would be taken into captivity in Babylon after Isaiah's prophecy. You see that transition between chapter 39 and chapter 40, going from the first 39 chapters, which which, uh, coincides with with all of the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament, and then we come to the 27 books from 40 on to 66, which is... uh, you know, talking, you know, kind of coinciding with the New Testament and grace and, and the hope that comes through the Messiah and all of that. But in, the, in that transition, you know, we, we are introduced to Babylon again in, in chapter 39 to show us that they're going to get into trouble because they're going to be taken into captivity eventually. So consider the Jews now who are going to be taken into captivity in Babylon after Isaiah's prophecy. See, they had a rough road ahead of them as they would return to Jerusalem 
to rebuild the temple. I mean, it was going to be rough. It wasn't going to be easy just because God was going to take them out of Babylon and bring them back to Jerusalem. It was a rough road to get them from one place to the other and then for, for them to have to build not only the temple back and just put brick upon brick and, and, and stone upon stone. Not brick, but, but stone upon stone. And then eventually have to build the walls as Nehemiah had to do. I mean, these, this, these weren't easy times for them coming back into Jerusalem. But the Lord was going to go before them to open the way, you see. The Lord was going to go before them. Certainly this prophecy would be fulfilled now by the ministry of John the Baptist. These, these are all words that are, that are pointing to the coming of John the Baptist. All the gospel, all the, uh, I should say all the gospels quote verse, uh, quote uh, you know, the verses stating that it was fulfilled by John. Notice, uh, if you will, let's, let's go through them. Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Notice it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent. And I want you to notice the message he had. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn away from the direction you're going, your way away from God, and repent. Turn around and go toward God. Why? Because the kingdom... Of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. I just added that because I just wanted you all to know that John was a hippie. Okay. Uh, Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verse 1. As it is written in the prophets, verse 2. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And again, prophets are mentioned because not only is this message given to us in Isaiah, but also Malachi, if you know that. Uh, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And uh, then it says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. I add that last part. So you'll know that his message had to do with repentance. You see, we're going to emphasize that repentance and that issue of repentance. Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 76 through 79. It says, and by the way, this is a prophecy about John and to John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. There is later on also another uh, reference to Isaiah uh, concerning John's ministry as he sets forth in it. Uh, John chapter 1, now the Gospel of John, verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 22. John 1, verse 22. Then they said to him, Who are you, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'll tell you this, there's, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the last week about, you know, uh, the critics of, of the Scriptures to say that there's either, you know, the, a second Isaiah that have, had to have written the last half of Isaiah or even possibly a third Isaiah. Well, there's only one Isaiah. 
and this is chapter 40. Uh, of course, they didn't have chapter uh, uh, divisions then, but uh, it is very clear that there was only one Isaiah. And that one Isaiah gave the prophecy concerning John. So John was the Lord's messenger who was crying out in the wilderness, crying out in barren places. Isn't that an interesting ministry? You know, and when we think of people that go out to start churches or they go out to start ministries, you know, they want to go where people are. John is crying out in the wilderness, in the barrenness. You know, there has to be much reference. I'm sure there were people around, but there has to be much reference to the barrenness and the wilderness of the hearts of people who were far from God at that time. But they were awakened by the very knowledge that God had sent His messenger and Isaiah's prophecy had come true. And the sense of this passage is that the Lord is coming to His people as a great dignitary, or even more specifically, as a triumphant king who would have the road prepared before him to travel, travel in glory and ease. That's what they did when they heard that kings were coming. They would say, the king is coming. Let's go get the road to be real smooth, you know. Because for the people, you know, they didn't need a whole lot of smoothness. They just needed to get from one place to another. But when they heard the king was coming, oh, they, they had to make it perfect. They had to flatten out everything. They had to make sure that everything was done correctly. It's the idea of building roads, filling in the valleys, cutting into mountains, and making straight and a smooth path, much like the principle most freeways are built on, except for ours. But, but no, I'm just, you know. Uh, you know, that principle of, of making these roads nice and smooth and easy for people to travel upon. Whatever is wrong with the road must be corrected. Now, spiritually speaking, Israel was in the wilderness when Jesus came. And so the real preparation was to take place in their hearts. That was the real preparation. It was the same with us. The same thing had to happen to us. You know, when you look at that particular statement in, in, verses, uh, in verses 4, well, in verse 4, for example, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places smooth. That sounds like our lives. Our highs and our lows, our rough places, crooked times, you know. We, we, we could be kind of crooked. We could be rough. That's a picture of our old life without Christ. That's a picture of our life before Jesus. God does in our hearts, you see. That preparation that God does in our hearts is like the building of a road. Both are expensive, right? Boy, do we know that. Pay the taxes that we do. Both are expensive. Both deal with different problems and situations. And both take a master engineer. It takes a master engineer to build roads in our day and time. It takes a master engineer to fix us. It's a beautiful verse. And by the way, in Second Chronicles chapter 6, I want you to kind of keep a bookmark there because we're going to come back to it later. But in Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 30, this is, this is a, uh, a prayer of Solomon, son of David. And he says here, Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, speaking to God, and forgive. And give to everyone according to all his ways, whose hearts you know. That's the phrase I want you to see. Whose hearts you know. Aren't you glad that God knows 
our hearts. Aren't you glad that God knew our hearts when we were far from Him? Aren't you glad that He knew all about us, that He knew us even before we were born, even before we were conceived, even before we were thought of? He thought of us. He knew us. He knows us. And Solomon says, whose hearts, or, or whose heart, you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. You know the hearts of each and every one of us. You know, we can try to get by with some, you know, with, with some people, you know, but we can't get by with God. <laughs> he knows our hearts. We can't fool Him. We can't deceive Him. He knows our hearts. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? This is a rhetorical question. There's really only one answer, isn't there? Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Now, does he test it so he can find out? No, he tests tests it for our sake. He searches and tests the hearts for our sakes. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And so when the way is prepared, you see, then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Notice again in our text, the glory of the Lord, verse 5, shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Well, when Jesus came, God's glory came. When Jesus came to this earth, God's glory came. First John, I'm sorry, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14. Many of you are familiar with this verse. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John is saying we beheld His glory. We saw the glory of the Father in Jesus. When Jesus came, the glory came. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That when Jesus came into this dark, sinful world, His glory came. God's glory came. I think that's why I like the Christmas story so much. I think that's why I like Christmas so much. Because if we we can look beyond all of the trappings of the season, we look straight to the glory of Jesus. We look straight into the glorious face of God coming to us. God came to us. Because we needed Him to come. He doesn't come. We're in trouble, man. He doesn't come down here to this earth. We're, you know, roasted, fried, barbecued. It's todo. It's it, man. We're we're done. He doesn't come. Could anybody keep the law? We discovered now. We couldn't even keep one law. Can you imagine? Boy, we needed Jesus to come. And when He came, He came with the glory of God. We ought not to miss that. We ought not to make light of the glory of God. Because when we think of Jesus, we know that He is the express image of the Father. As it says in Hebrews. 
His glory was not only revealed to the prepared hearts described in the previous verses, uh, in verses 3 through 5 there, to those who heard the words, prepare the way of the Lord. His glory was not only to be revealed to those prepared hearts described in those verses, and not only to Jerusalem and Judah, but to every prepared heart. That means His glory has been revealed to us as well. Through His Word. The glory of God is in God's Word. That is why we consider the Word of God precious. That is why we teach the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. Word for word. Line upon line. Precept upon precept. Verse by verse. Chapter by chapter. Why? Because God's Word reveals the glory of God. His Spirit upon the church is to be revealing the glory of God. I read an article today. I've got to throw this in real quick. I read, I read an article today uh, about the Pope uh, making some kind of a declaration or, or, or ex- ex- accepting some kind of a declaration that, that, that says that there's only one true church, and that's the Catholic Church, and, and that uh, the Orthodox churches, they're okay, but they, they have a wound in them, you know, because they don't accept the Pope. And then he says that all the Protestant churches are not really churches at all. Don't be offended. Pray for that guy. I say this. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus says, I've come to you. And when you've received me, I've brought you into my body, the church. So folks, don't worry. You're part of the body of Christ. We're the church. Thank God for that. I'm not going to say any more. Every valley, for every valley to be exalted and every mountain and hill to be brought low reminds us of Jesus' statement. Luke chapter 14, verse 11. Jesus said, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Did you miss it? Luke 14, 11. I'd love for you to see it. I know you got your Bibles. Look at it in your Bibles. But I want you to see it up here too. Luke 14, verse 11. <laughs> for whoever exalts himself will be humble. Is that in there? Luke 14, verse 11. Oh, I don't see it. That's the problem. See, I can't see it. You guys see it all the time. Whoever exalts himself will be humble. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Folks, this is a very important truth. And it coincides, you see, with our very own lives. With the very thing that that is being said here by the prophet about, about the Messiah coming. Think about James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. 
Oh, I remember now what the Pope said. I have to. I said I wasn't going to say anymore. I got to say one more thing. He said that the Protestant churches aren't aren't uh, aren't really a part of the church because we have no connection to the apostles. And I thought, well, well, what is this? We have a big connection to them, you know. We believe what they wrote. So anyway, I had to throw that in. Ah, okay. But humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord; He'll lift you up. I mean, we have God's word. And when we humble ourselves, He lifts us up. And, and so we have, we have to consider. We have to consider. The attitude of our hearts toward God when we are in the presence of His glory, His Word, His Spirit. Consider that the ultimate fulfillment of verse 5 will be at the second coming. And I said, you know, both comings will be uh, dealt with here. But, but Isaiah 40, verse 5 says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, that hasn't happened yet, has it? That all flesh shall, shall see it. Revelation 21, verse 30, uh, 23 says this, The city had no need of the sun. Now we're speaking of the city, uh, you know, in heaven, the, the, the city of Jerusalem. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. So the glory will be seen by all. So the first and second comings then are revealed in, verses, in verse 5. Now in the next section of Isaiah 40, we hear the pronouncement of promise. What have we had so far? The proclamation of pardon, the, the declaration of divine providence, and now the, proclam- uh, the pronouncement of promise. Look at verses 6 through 8. We, we looked at it earlier, but let's look at it again. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Here's the answer. All flesh is as grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That's the promise. This particular passage has a few layers to it, and so we're going to kind of pull a few layers back here. But first of all, the first layer of this particular passage is that Assyria was gone. Remember that uh, Assyria had come to attack Judah and, and attacked a few cities, but when he got to Jerusalem, God destroyed the army of 185,000. So Assyria was gone, and Babylon would soon be gone. They weren't yet, of course, because yet the prophecy was to be fulfilled that they were going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. But Babylon would soon be gone. So like grass, nations and their leaders have their purposes, fulfill them, and then they fade away, just like grass. Nations have purposes, and then they fade away. The leaders of those nations have purposes, they fulfill them, and then they fade away. Sometimes they don't fulfill them quite well. But in other words, nations come, nations go, leaders come, leaders go, but the word of our Lord and our God will stand eternally. It will stand forever. I was was reading something else today. I was (laughs) reading something having to do with uh, somebody criticizing the fact that, you know, uh, well, God's word, you know, was written thousands of years ago, and it was for that time, but, you know, now in our time, God's Word, you know, we, we have to change it, uh, you know, to kind of meet the times. Oh, no, no, no. God's Word stands forever. We have to change to it, <laughs> not the other way around. 
Because the Bible tells us that God's Word stands forever. Uh, that God is unchangeable. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it isn't, you know, that, that the God's Word has to change according to, to society or to, or, 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 or to uh, cu- the cultures. No, we, we have to change toward it. See? So when people say, oh, you know, God's Word says this, but we don't believe that anymore because that was for that other time. But, you know, we're much more sophisticated, so we can do all kinds of other weird things that we think is okay. No, I'm sorry. God's Word still stands. It's still true. And it just proves one thing. Man's still a sinner. Man still wants his way. But God says, my way is the only way. You see? You see God's Word standing forever? It abides forever. Psalm 37, verses 1 and 2. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. Yeah, you see, we don't have anything to worry about because even those who oppress us, even those who attack us, hey, they'll be gone. Why? Because they won't stand forever, but God's Word will. Psalm 90, verses 1 through 6. Lord, You have been our dwelling place. By the way, this is a, this is a psalm of, of Moses. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever You had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, You are God. You turn man to destruction and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in Your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like asleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. It's the way man is. Psalm 103, verses 15 through 18. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. <clears throat> but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. You see the importance of fearing God, the importance of, 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 of keeping the Word of God, keeping the covenant that was made by God, and the commandments that are given to us, of course, that Jesus has fulfilled, and we now trust in Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Peter says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, there it is, New Testament, but it says we are to obey. In obeying the truth of the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever, because, and notice where he quotes from, (laughs) Isaiah, All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So now we see how clear it is. Man fades away. Man comes, flourishes from a time, and then is gone. But God's word stands forever. Israel in its return from Babylonian captivity could depend on the promises of God because the Word of God stands forever. We can trust His Word because it stands forever. It lasts. Too many people are always trying to keep up, you know, 
we're, we're always trying to keep up with the latest things. I'm not going to ask anybody here who has the iPhone. No, you know, you see, we just, we got to keep up with everything. Oh, the iPhone. Oh, I want one of those. Oh, if I'll just, you know, send something to Rush Limbaugh, he'll give you one. But anyway, I think, I think that's what he's doing. He's giving away iPhones. See, because everybody wants something. It's new. It's, you know, I mean, who can do it all? Trying to keep up with all the latest things. Who can do it all? Things change. People change. Styles change. Think about it this way. Fifteen years ago, I couldn't have shared this list with you. Fifteen, years, 20, 15 to 20 years ago, I couldn't have shared this list with you. Here it is. Signs that you've had too much of the 21st century. Signs that you've had too much of the 21st century. You ready? You try to enter your password on the microwave. All right. You now think of three espressos as getting wasted. Right, Belen? Oh, just kidding. You haven't played solitaire with a real deck of cards in years. You have a list of 15 numbers to reach your family of three. 15 numbers. You consider second day air delivery to be slow. Your idea of being organized is, is, is multiple colored post-it notes. Came out of my Bible right now. I didn't even realize I had them. Here's the last one. Cleaning up the dining area. Ready? Cleaning up the dining area means getting the fast food bags out of the back seat of your car. <laughs> All right. Signs you've had too much of the 21st, uh, yeah, it's the 21st century. I mean, things change, right? T- tw- 20 years ago, we, I, that, that list would have made sense. Folks, only one thing lasts. Only one thing lasts. Only one thing truly lasts. It is God's Word. It is possible that those coming up out of captivity from Babylon not only remembered this, but they probably claimed this because they knew what it said. It was going back to that prayer by Solomon in Second Chronicles chapter 6. Can we read a little bit more of that? Look at verses 36 to 39. He's speaking to God. And he says, when they sin against you, speaking of his own people, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And I think he adds that just to add himself in all of that. Solomon had some problems later on. But when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent, remember that word? What did John the Baptist preach? Repentance. And repent and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done wrong, and we have committed wickedness. In other words, confessing our sins before God. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity. Notice, in the land of their captivity. In other words, where they are in captivity awakens them to the realization that they have sinned. And so they have confessed to God in the land of their captivity. Where they have been carried captive and prayed toward their land, which you gave to their fathers. In other words, they would turn and they would just worship toward Jerusalem. 
the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name. Notice verse 39. Then here from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. That was God's word for them to remember that God would forgive them of their sins if they would turn and repent. So now, after being given a proclamation of pardon and a declaration of divine providence, and then certainly not to forget that pronouncement of promise of God's word, they would now be given the presentation of peace. Verses 9 through 11. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, good tidings, good news in other words, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold His reward is with Him and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arm. You know, I love that picture. (laughs) I I just got to stop and think about that picture. He will gather His lambs with his arm. It doesn't say arms. It says with his arm. He'll gather his, la- his lambs with one arm. Singular. Isn't God great? And carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now, looking at things in perspective and in context, the nation of Judah comes out of the valley of captivity and climbs to the top of of the mount to announce God's victory over the enemy. The city of Jerusalem is to bring good tidings, meaning it is to preach the good news. It was a message to be shouted with strength and without fear to as many people as possible. It says to all of Judah, Behold your God! This isn't a matter of telling people to give God a passing glance, a glance or a momentary glimpse. It isn't just, you know, years ago, back in the early 70s, you know, during the Jesus movement, I think it began there, and then it kind of went through a few other, uh, other, other years and possibly another generation. But there used to be a little say, uh, saying that, uh, you, you know, you used to see on little cards, try God, or it was on a little jewelry or something, try God. You know, and, and I, I, I never liked that. I, I, you know, it's almost like saying, well, you, you know, what do you, what do you like, Pepsi or Coke? I, well, just try God, you know. It, 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 too often we were just kind of giving little, you know, little momentary glances. Listen, when we tell people about Jesus, we want them to look hard upon Him. We want them to look to Him. We want them to look at the one who came to die for our sins, the one who came to, gave his, to give His life so that we might have life. It takes a lot more than just trying something. It takes somebody to behold that God in such a way that you hold Him and never lose sight of Him. Behold your God. This isn't a matter, again, of just telling people just to take that momentary glance. 
I know, I know people, and I'm sure you know people too. You know, they just have God on their resume. They have church on their resumes. They have some kind of church activity on their resumes. That's not a servant. That's not a person who has been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's somebody who's sold out completely and totally to God because he's beholding his God and he's not letting go. He's beholding his Christ. He's beholding his Lord. He's beholding his shepherd. He's not letting go of that vision. We are, in fact, to invite people to take a good, long look at the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who gives life, the God who is worthy of all praise and worship. Behold your God. Some people might say today, He's not my God. He is, but you'll know that later. You either bow your knee to Him now, because one day you'll bow to Him on heaven or on earth or under the earth, it says in Philippians. I don't know about you, but I don't want to bow my knee on this earth or under the earth. I want to bow it in heaven. I want you to bow it in heaven. And bow it here too, but I mean here and there. But not to the point that you don't bow until when? Until you're in hell. Because people in hell will be bowing their knee to God. That's that's the picture here. You You either bow now or you're going to have to bow later. Because He's your God. For the Jews coming out of captivity, the good news was the defeat of Babylon and the release of the captives. You'll see this later on in Isaiah 52. Uh, Let me read it to you, verses 7 through 9. But but notice the connection of the good news. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Why was it a, pre- a presentation of peace? Because you see, when the war is over, man, that's when peace comes. The conflict. When the conflict is over, that's when peace comes. The good news today is the defeat of sin. It is the defeat of death and of Satan by Jesus Christ and the salvation of all of those who trust in Him. You can go all the way to Isaiah 61 to see that. Verses 1-3, through The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Remember Jesus said these words in the synagogue? He was speaking of Himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. What does that mean? He's the Christ because the the word Christ or Messiah means the anointed one. He He has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Remember that in Luke chapter 4, this is when Jesus was handed the the book of the prophet Isaiah. In verse 17 it says, And when He had opened the book, He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus was confirming and fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. 
Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. A recovery of sight to the blind, he adds, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable, the year of the Lord. And then our text itself tells us that his arm, the arm of the Lord, the strong hand of God, and and his arm shall rule before him, as it says. You see, the Lord's arm is mighty for winning battles and wars as well as for ruling with power. This uh, he will do when he returns again. When Jesus comes again, he will rule. And when he does, he will come with rewards. Now, this is an interesting thing. For You have to understand what he comes with. He comes for those who have served the Lord. With, he comes with blessings for them. For those who have rejected the Lord, he comes with judgment and punishment. That's the work of the Lord, you see. His work before Him. But what great arms the Lord has. He has powerful arms. Powerful to win battles. Powerful to win wars. Mighty to rule. And not only are they powerful, but they're loving and they're gentle as well. I think husbands and fathers, you need to take note of this example that God gives us of Himself. A God with arms of power to protect, to take care of. Arms of love and gentleness. He will feed his flock. Verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm, his one arm, and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. With the time that I have remaining, I want you to consider the three titles given to Jesus in the New Testament. Actually, in in the first title, he gives to himself. In John 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. Title number one, good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. You know, it's interesting that even in the church, you don't have to get money to be a hireling. It's just the attitude of a hireling who will not care for the sheep. And it says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. First title is the good shepherd. The second title given to him is in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. It is the title of the great shepherd. For it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, notice the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The great shepherd. He's not only the good shepherd who gives his life for this. He's a great shepherd who died for us and shed his blood for us. Lastly, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, he's the chief shepherd. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Isn't that a wonderful promise? That when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory the good shepherd 
the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. Let me close with this story. Years ago, a military officer and his wife were aboard a ship that was caught in a raging ocean storm. Seeing the frantic look in her eyes, the man tried unsuccessfully to calm her fears. Suddenly, she grasped his sleeve and cried, How can you be so calm? And he stepped back a few feet and he drew his sword and pointing it at her heart, he said, Are you afraid of this? Without hesitation, she answered, Of course not. Why not? he inquired. Because it is in your hand. And you love me too much to hurt me. To this he replied, I know the one who holds the winds and the waters in the hollow of his hand, as we'll see next week. And he will surely care for us. That's how he comforts his wife. The officer was not disturbed because he had put his trust in the Lord. What a beautiful story. Why are you not afraid of this sword? Because I know you love me and you won't hurt me. Well, that's our Lord. He loves us that much. That no matter what storm we go through, no matter what trials we face, no matter what struggles come, He said, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Why does he say that? He can say that because he is our good, great, and chief shepherd who carries us in his arm, who lifts us up and carries us in his bosom and gently leads those who are with you. Shall we pray?